All right, Gospel of Mark in chapter 4. Gospel of Mark in chapter 4. Last week we shared with you some thoughts for fathers and our children. We called it prayers for our children and grandchildren. This morning we want to return to our section-by-section study of the Gospel of Mark. This is uh, number 15 in our series on the Gospel of Mark, just beginning in chapter 4 today. Today we come to, to one of the two extensive teaching sections in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, this is a fast-moving account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Some call it the newspaper edition or the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Gospel story. So Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on the detailed teaching of the Lord Jesus, except here in chapter 4 and once again in chapter 13. There are other sections of teaching that are scattered throughout the Gospel of Mark, of course, but not as much detail as in these two places, and not nearly as much as the other three Gospels. This is the the very familiar parable of the soils, often called the parable of the sower because of the way the parable begins. Uh, Sometimes it's called the parable of the seed, but probably the best name for it is the parable of the soil because the, the, the quality of the soil in this parable is really the point. It's the whole point of the parable. Now we're going to read the parable today, and today will be kind of an intro into this very important uh, section of Scripture. We're also going to look at it next week. But if you have a heart to serve God, if you have a heart to reach people for Christ, if you have a heart that you want to be used by God in the lives of other people, then this parable should not only give you great information, but it should also give you great comfort and great encouragement and great motivation to keep on keeping on for the Lord Jesus. And if you are seeking the Lord, or if you know someone who is seeking the Lord, this parable should be an eye-opener and a real call to get serious about the Lord. So I want to begin to read here in, in uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Gospel of Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus says, And again he began to teach by the sea. Or Mark writes, Again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables. And he said to them in his teaching, Listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened, as he sowed, that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth. Sorry, I lost my place there with my bifocals. There we go. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth. Immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone... 
those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And we'll pause there. If you were reading this parable in a university or a seminary someplace, they would call it a paradigm parable, meaning that the parable provides a framework for understanding a bunch of other parables, which is what Jesus said, he just said in the moment, he said, don't you understand this parable? Then how can you understand all the parables? So this parable provides a framework for understanding a whole bunch of other parables. It's kind of a model or a pattern for understanding these other teachings of Jesus. And it helps us understand our world from an evangelistic perspective, from an outreach perspective. In other words, the, the parable describes to us how people will respond to the gospel and why they do what they do with the gospel. Nothing could be more important for us than this, because after all, we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have one primary ministry responsibility, don't we? If we were to sum up the Great Commission the way Mark did at the end of his gospel, we would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. And since this is our, our primary calling as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of the Lord Jesus, this, this is, this is, a, they, they, and this is the final ministry command that the Lord Jesus personally gave to us, it is very important for us to understand the responses that we will encounter as we speak to people about the Lord. All of the other commands and instructions in the New Testament uh, for us to obey are all designed to produce in us a lifestyle, a certain testimony in the world that makes the message of Jesus believable. There's an old saying, I heard it about 50 years ago, it kind of summarizes it very well. It's, it's what you do speaks so loudly that I can't hear a word you say. Think about that. What you do speaks so loudly that I can't hear a word you say. I've also heard other, heard other people say, do you walk the walk or do you just talk the talk? You see, the, the, the whole purpose for trying to live a Christ-like life is that so we can bring people to Christ. Because if you and I, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we look like the world, and we act like the world, and we talk like the world, and we live like the world, and we have all the same attitudes as the world, and, and, and nobody sees us as any different from the rest of the world, then what's the point of Jesus? And if he, if he hasn't changed my life, and he, if he hasn't given me a new perspective, and peace in my soul, and the joy of forgiveness, and confidence for eternity, if the Lord Jesus hasn't done that for me, and if you can't see that in my life, then what's the point of you seeking the Lord? 
You see, we are called to be different from the world. And I don't mean weird or mystically bizarre. I just mean we have a distinctive lifestyle. We have a distinctive difference between, should be, between true followers of Jesus and the rest of the world. Because if Jesus doesn't make a difference in our lives, then why should anybody else seek the Lord? And how can our witness for Christ have any credibility? Why should anyone believe us if we aren't, if we aren't living for the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, everything about our life should drive us toward our responsibility of evangelism, our responsibility to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. What could be more important in our outreach than to understand what we should expect in terms of responses from people? You know, there, there, there are people who think that if the sower of the seed, if the person witnessing is sharp enough, if the sower is a good enough speaker, if he can answer lots of questions, that he can understand all resistance of the gospel, and with his wonderful witnessing ability, he should be able to win thousands of people to Christ. Carol just mentioned it in prayer time a moment ago, but there was a huge thunderstorm, hailstorm in Colorado last Thursday that developed into an F1 tornado and came very close to our daughter's house. They sustained some roof damage, had to do lots of yard cleanup, but just a few blocks away, the damage was much, much worse. The tornado touched down and kind of cut a swath a quarter mile wide for six miles and passed just a few blocks from Bethany's house. Well, a few hours before the storm, the tornado warnings were popping up on everybody's phone, and our seven-year-old grandson asked his mother, our daughter, a question about the storm. She said, well, I don't know how it will go. I don't have an answer to that question. To which grandson said, well, if you don't know the answer, then your battery must be dead. <laughs> and there are lots of people out there today whose theology tells them that if you can't reach people for Christ right and left, if you can't answer every Bible question, if you can't overcome every resistance of the gospel message, then your battery must be dead. There must be something wrong with you if, if, if you can't come up with an answer for everything. You know, John MacArthur, you're familiar with him, he tells the story of being in a meeting a number of years ago with some people in a large Christian organization who were developing a strategy to raise money for their outreach programs for many wealthy businessmen. And, and the, the appeal that they gave was this. For every million dollars that you give us, we'll give you back a million converts to Christ because we know the strategy. That's a very bold claim. We know the trick to overcoming every obstacle. We know the trick to convincing everyone to truly come to Christ. Dr. MacArthur wondered, and I do as well, have they, have they ever studied the parable of the soils? Do they not understand what to expect when they sow the seed? You know, I think it was, it was very hard for the followers of Jesus to understand why so few of the Jews were believing in Him. There was a lot in Jesus' day of what we might call messianic expectation. John the baptizer had come on the scene. He was like the Old Testament prophets. He dressed like one. He lived like one. He preached like one. And there had been 400 years with no prophetic word that no God-ordained prophets since Malachi had written the last book in the Old Testament 400 years B.C., 400 years before Christ. 
John the baptizer comes along. He begins his public ministry. He's calling people to repent and get ready for the kingdom. He's, he's, he's saying the, ministry, or the, 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 the kingdom is getting close. He said you need to repent and get ready for him. The Messiah, the anointed one is coming. The Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom are going to be finally fulfilled. And thousands and thousands of people were going out to the Jordan River to listen to John preach and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. So there was this tremendous amount of messianic expectation and hope. They, they, were, they were thinking that the Messiah was right around the corner. And he was. John the Baptist set that in motion. Then Jesus comes along. John baptizes him. And John calls out publicly as Jesus is coming to him to be baptized. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus had certainly escalated that, that expectation that the Messiah was coming because there, were, there was nobody who could deny his miracles. No one could deny that he had power over disease and power over demons and power over death. He had power over nature. He could literally create food. Folks realized or recognized that he could actually read your mind. They saw a kind of power in the Lord Jesus Christ that, that, that no one could stand up against. Jesus could shut down the Pharisees with a couple of simple questions and verses from the Old Testament. They had no answer for him. It was pretty evident to everybody that Jesus was a miracle worker. That nobody could do what he did unless he had power from God. They also knew that the religious establishment was against him. So the average folks were caught somewhere between wanting to believe in Jesus but not wanting to get in trouble with the religious leaders. They had so much social power, they had so much political power, that everybody was afraid to cross them. Lots of people like that today. Lots of people around here like that today. Lots of people that you know like, uh, like that today. They're kind of caught between this desire to, to want to believe in Jesus, but not wanting to get in trouble with everybody. Because people have so much, there are certain people, certain places have so much social power, so much political power, and, and everybody's kind of afraid to, to, to cross some of those lines and really follow Jesus because, because my grandma and my aunts and my cousins and everybody else are all going to gang up on me. Nothing new about that. People in Jesus' day were dealing with the very, very same issue. We saw back in chapter 3 that the crowds who, that were following Jesus were, were absolutely huge. Never in history had there been a miracle worker like this. His absolute power was totally uncontested over disease, over demons, over medical conditions of any kind. They'd never seen anything like this. They'd never heard anybody teach the way he taught. But this is the issue. When Jesus is so unmistakably divine... When his power is so unmistakably from God, when his teaching is so superior to anything they'd ever heard, when his life is so amazingly holy and perfect, why didn't everybody want to become disciples? That was the question in their minds. Well, why, why doesn't everybody want to follow Jesus? Look what he does. Look what he says. Look how he teaches. But the true believers were this little group of 12 apostles and, and other believers along the way, who when it was all said and done, even after the resurrection, they only numbered 120 in Jerusalem and possibly a few hundred in Galilee. Thousands had heard him preach. 
Thousands had seen his miracles. Thousands had literally been healed by Jesus. But there were just a few hundred disciples when Jesus left this earth, even after the resurrection, rising from the dead. You know, I think, I think early in Jesus' ministry, it was very hard for the disciples to understand this. They had come to believe in Jesus. Their eyes had been opened to see who Jesus really was. Their loyalty to Jesus was getting stronger and stronger. And it would have been perplexing to them to wonder why everybody else can't see it. How could the crowds be so exposed to his teaching and see with their own eyes his miracle power? And to be so amazed by who he was and yet never make a genuine commitment to Jesus. There were lots of shallow commitments. There still are. But what was going on in the hearts of the thousands of people who were literally mobbing Jesus so intensely that he could hardly sit down for a meal? We saw that back in chapter 3. And it is in that context, of that kind of situation, that Jesus tells this parable. He's explaining why people respond the way they respond. In this parable, there's only one statement about the sower, and there's only one statement about the seed. All of the other information is about the soil. And there are four different kinds of soil, three bad and one good. Even in the good soil, there are three different levels of response and commitment. And this is, this is a picture, this is a pattern of the different responses to the gospel and different commitment levels and different levels of productivity for the kingdom, both in Jesus' time and right down to today. Now next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at all the different soils. But today I want to focus with you on verses 9 through 14. So if you look at your Bible again, let's read verses 9 to 14 again, and I want to focus on Jesus' teaching there. And he said to them, this is after he told the parable, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Jesus starts out this little section saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that phrase occurs about eight times in the New Testament, And it occurs twice in the Old Testament. And it it indicates to us that there are some people who do not have ears to hear. They, They are willingly blind to the truth. As the Apostle Paul so aptly put it, and he writing in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So as Jesus preached, as the apostles later preached, as you and I today witness to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, there are some people who do not have ears to hear. They have closed their minds to the gospel. Satan has blinded their minds, and witnessing to them is like throwing a tennis ball against a brick wall. Everything just bounces off, and they seem to be totally unfazed. Jesus knows that. 
He knows the condition of their hearts. So as he throws out the seed of the word, he plainly says, if you got ears to hear this teaching, then hear it. Plug into it. If you got ears to hear, let him hear. Now, you probably already know this, but just in case, the Greek word parabole or parable means to cast alongside, meaning to lay down alongside for a comparison. It's related to the word parallel, alongside, as you can easily hear. Parables were common teaching tools for many centuries before Jesus. Jesus was a master teacher at making spiritual truth clear by parables, by using parables. But it was only clear to those who believed. Jesus basically says to his disciples here that parables are designed to clarify the truth for believers and to conceal the truth from unbelievers. He said, my parables do both. They, they clarify the truth for believers and they conceal the truth from unbelievers. Because he says to them in verse 10, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to outsiders, meaning unbelievers, I speak in parables so they won't understand everything. Then Jesus refers to a very interesting passage from Isaiah chapter 6 uh, that he doesn't say as the prophet Isaiah said, but that's who he's quoting. You'll see it in just a moment. And I do want us to look at that. So if you will look at Isaiah chapter 6, turn back in your Bible to the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, fascinating passage of Scripture, wonderful passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah in this, in this passage is, is recounting to his readers how he was called into the ministry. How God called him to be a prophet and what God wanted him to do. And I want to just read through part of it. There's all kinds of wonderful theology in Isaiah 6. We don't have time to totally unpack it all. But I do want you to see this passage that Jesus is mentioning. So look at it. You got your place there in Isaiah 6. Let's read part of that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Those are angelic beings, each one having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one cried to, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean nips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Pause there for just a moment. Isaiah sees this clear vision of God, and what is the first thing he recognizes? He recognizes his own sin. And I would submit to you that the closer you get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you will recognize your own sin. If you think you're just rolling along, just Jim Danny through life, and you're pretty good, and life's going pretty well, and you've got everything handled spiritually, and you're on a great track for God, you're not having any problems and struggles with your spiritual life, you need to get closer to the Lord Jesus. 
Because when you really see God for who He is, then you have the same, the same response that Isaiah had. I have seen the Lord of glory. Oh man, am I a sinner. Woo! Remember in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ stops the wind. Peace be still. What does Peter do? He falls on his knees in the boat. Says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. So you really see the power of God and the glory of God, and you will recognize how sinful we really are. I won't keep hammering that. Verse 6, And the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. So now he's purified Isaiah. And then this great verse, I heard it preached all my life. I grew up in Bible preaching churches, great missionary churches. They preached on this verse. I mean, I heard a message on this verse at least once a year. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Great thought. I mean, it's great. Wow. Isaiah, here's God saying, I need a worker. I need somebody to represent me. I need somebody to go for me. I need somebody to preach for me. I need somebody to, 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 to be an ambassador for me. I, 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 whom can I send? Who can go for us? And Isaiah says, here my Lord, you can send me. And so, look what God says to him. He says in verse 9, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their ears or shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. I'm sure Isaiah is saying, really, Lord? That's, that, that's the message you want me to preach here? You want me to preach to these people so, so, that, so that, you know, you're, you're basically, you know, just tell them, keep on hearing, but you won't understand. Keep on seeing, but you'll never get it. And so the obvious question he asks in verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? <laughs> oh. Okay, Lord, this does not sound like a popular message. How long do I have to do this? And God says, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, and the houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. He said, you just keep preaching, keep preaching, keep preaching. Nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to respond. Nobody's going to pay any attention. I'm bringing judgment to the land of Israel because of their sin. But you just keep preaching, keep preaching, keep preaching. And, and their ears are going to be closed and their eyes are going to be blind. And they're not going to get it. And you keep preaching until there's nothing left of the land. Just keep preaching. But then he does give a great promise there in verse 13. A tenth will be in it. And will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. You're wondering what the symbolism there. He's saying there'll be about 10% of the people who are going to respond. The other 90%, they're done. And, and so, you know, when we look at this great passage of Scripture, I look at verse 8, having grown up hearing it preached having been a missionary pastor all these years, over 40 years, over 40 years and I hear this, this great thought, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And back 50 years ago, I raised my hand and I said, here am I, Lord, send me. 
And I would like to say, you know, obviously, thankfully, I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I'm thinking, why didn't God put that verse all over the Bible? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here am I, Lord, send me. You know, this is the only place that verse appears. But verse 9 and verse 10, keep on seeing but do not understand, or keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but, but, but do not perceive. And their people are they're, they're not going to hear, they're not going to listen, they're not going to come back and be healed. Those verses, verse 9 and 10, you know where they are? They're in Matthew, they're in Mark, they're in Luke, they're in John, they're in Acts, they're in Romans. Those two verses are quoted in the first six books of the New Testament. Verse 8 isn't, but verse 9 and 10 is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. And that's the verse, that, that's the, this is the passage that Jesus is referring to. When he, when he says, when he says to you, uh, this, uh, you know, come, come, yes, volunteers serve the Lord, volunteer to speak up for the Lord, uh, but and, and yet he says, most of the people are not going to listen. My parables, he says, are designed to reveal the truth to you and conceal the truth from unbelievers. And in the Gospel of John, there's a fascinating sequence of verbs used when John quotes this passage. Like I said, it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Let's look at the passage in John. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we'll start to read in verse 37. John 12, verse 37. It says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's chapter 53. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, a definite reference to chapter 6 in Isaiah. And so when John, but when, when John quotes these verses, and, and look, I want you to look at verse, verse 37. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him they did not believe in him and then look at verse 39 therefore they could not believe that's a that's an interesting sequence they did not believe therefore they could not believe the verb tense there indicates an, an action in process meaning it was something that they were in the process of doing Repeatedly, Not a present tense, but, but a similar tense. An action in process. Meaning, when it says Jesus did so many signs before them, they were in the process of not believing in him. And therefore, in verse 37, they were in the process of not being able to believe in him. It's, very, it's a very, very fascinating thought when, when you kind of chew on that. You see, and this is the way I'll put this together for you. A conscious choice to reject the Lord over and over and over and over and over again will eventually render you unable to believe. You see, you reject and reject and reject and reject 
and reject and reject, and after a while, you don't care anymore. You, you, you have sealed your own fate. Now, that is a very frightening thought. But I am convinced that that is exactly what Jesus is explaining to his disciples. These crowds of people, they have seen my miracles, they have seen my healings, they have seen my power over the spirit world, they have heard my teachings over and over and over and over and over and over, and they have refused to believe over and over and over and over. Okay, they can go their own way. They did not believe. They were in the process of not believing, not believing, not believing, not believing. Therefore, they could not believe. Wow. And I want to conclude our thoughts this morning with you by reading a very powerful exhortation by the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, if you would go there, please. And we'll be winding up here. Keeping your fingers warmed up today. We don't always look at this many passages of Scripture, but Hebrews chapter 3. And remember, Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, the Jewish people in the first century who had professed their faith in Christ, but they were drifting back toward Old Testament Judaism for a variety of reasons. But, but I want you to look at this challenge. It goes right along with our study today. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to begin to read in verse 7. There's a six or eight verses here we're going to look at. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, which he's quoting actually from Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, in the, in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and they said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have, they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, here it is again, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What a great thought, repeated three times there. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why? Because... If you reject and reject and reject and reject and reject and reject and reject, after a while you don't care anymore. They did not believe, therefore they could not believe. Of course, it's a very scary thought. I've, there's some people I've witnessed to for years and years and years and years, sometimes wonderfully in the grace of God. He rescues them and they put their faith in Jesus Christ after I've talked to him about the Lord for 20 years, 30 years. You know, but there are other people I've tried to talk to you about the Lord and they're interested and they respond and they're kind of sort of curious and then, and then after a while it's just, it's over. Like I said, it's like throwing a tennis ball against a brick wall. It just keeps bouncing back. Nothing gets through. They're totally, un, I mean, I'm talking to a guy one day and I said, do you ever wonder what will happen to you when you die? 
He kind of took a deep breath and looked at me and said, No. I said, it, it never crosses your mind what will happen to you when you die? Uh, no, ne never really thought about it. I said, do you think you should think about it? Oh, uh, no, I don't, I don't care. See, that, that's what happens to a person who rejects and rejects and rejects and rejects and rejects. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart. Don't let this evil heart of unbelief pull you away from the living God. So my closing thought is this, based on what Jesus taught there to his disciples in the Gospel of Mark. Whatever God may be doing in your heart, I plead with you to never harden your heart. It may be the voice of the Lord in your heart to come to Him for forgiveness. It may be the voice of the Lord in your heart to commit your life to serving Him. It may be the voice of the Lord directing you to witness to someone or to minister to someone in some way. It may be the voice of the Lord challenging you, if you're a believer in Christ, to lay aside something in your life that is preventing you from being a serious follower of Jesus. I have no idea how God may be working in your life, unless, of course, you tell me. I do not know your heart, but God does. But today, if you hear God's voice speaking to you about any issue, please, please, please do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Lord, is a challenging passage. We know you're a gracious God. We know you're a merciful God. We know you're a compassionate God. But we know, Lord, that we can reject and reject and reject and reject and reject. And after a while, folks just don't care anymore. They've heard the voice of God calling them and they have turned it aside and turned it aside and turned it aside and turned it aside. And we pray, Lord, that they will never reach that point where they don't care. Where they just reject in a finality. As so many of those thousands of people who heard Jesus preach and they saw him perform miracles and they literally saw it with their own eyes. And yet, as John said, they were in the process of not believing. Over and over and over and over and over again to the point now they could not believe. They had sealed their own fate. Lord, I'm sure there are people around us like that. I don't, I don't suppose, Lord, any folks here this morning have gone that far or they wouldn't be here this morning. I know, Lord, anybody sitting in this room today is here because they're still hearing your voice. They're still seeking you. But I pray, Father, that whatever you are trying to lead our folks to do, those who know Christ, Lord, Help them to respond to your voice. Those who do not know you as their Savior, Lord, I pray they will respond to your call to them to bow the knee before Jesus and admit their sin and come to Christ for forgiveness. Lord, help us to not harden our hearts as you deal with us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to sing a verse together, if we would, of Amazing Grace.